Patricia wants diabetic folks to know you are more than your glucose numbers. She knows firsthand what it's like to get a surprising diabetic diagnosis and how difficult it can be to learn to manage it. She was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic in her 20s when she was running on all cylinders as an ER nurse. A self-described perfectionist, she has worked through various emotions surrounding her diagnosis, including grief, and then she began to experience acceptance and give herself compassion when those glucose numbers weren't, quote, perfect. And that has been one of the key things that has helped her to thrive. Here is her story. So Patricia, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being a guest. I'm excited to hear more about your story. I got a few teasers earlier and I'm excited to hear more of the details. So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. I think I alluded in our pre our pre-call messaging right. um, that I'd ask you three fun facts about yourself. So you could start with that or other things about yourself. Um, okay, we'll start with three fun facts. I, I have two off the top of my head. I'm gonna have to come up with a third. So I guess the first is I am the fifth of seven children. Um, I grew up in a house with one bathroom, five girls, two boys. Ooh. Crazy, right? A, mid- a Midwest farmer's daughter's girl up on a farm. Um, yes. What else? I was an RN when I was 20. So I had finished nursing school, taken boards. I was a registered nurse and I could legally push IV morphine into someone's vein, but I could not buy a beer. Huh. <laughs> right? Like I was 20. Ponder that for a second, right? That- right, <laughs> right, right. Um, and I guess the last fun fact is... I guess this is not a fun fact, but I'm the owner and founder of a company called Better Diabetes Life. And I am one of less than, I think it's 800 board certified nurse coaches in the United States today. Very nice. Yeah. So I guess an even nurse coaching is a kind of new modality. It's a holistic aspect of nursing. So typical nursing, we think of body treatments, pills, procedures, vital signs, monitoring, all of that stuff. This holistic looks at the whole self, body, mind, and spirit, and looks at how we put the person first and figure out what they need to move them towards wellness versus a prescriptive, you're broken and we're going to fix you this way. Um, And that, anyway, it's been a fantastic journey to learn some new skills to add to, I've been a nurse for almost 40 years. So um, it's pretty cool. It's new. It's fun to be sort of cutting edge and defining the space. And well, much needed in our modern days and times. Yeah, yeah. So the way we first connected, you told me a little bit about your story of being diagnosed as a diabetic. Yep. But I am curious what your life was like before that was even on your radar. You mentioned you became an RN at 20. So you're a go-getter. You graduated high school. You graduated college. You got out into your career. Yep. So um, I was in Illinois. So again, Midwest farmer's daughter, little tiny town in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. And after working for nine months in a hospital back home, I'm like, oh my gosh, there has to be more. So um, a girl I went to nursing school with, she and I were pin palling, right? It was long distance. This was in the in the 80s. So it was long distance to call. So we would write letters back and forth, right? Like that long ago. And um, she's like, you need to move to Dallas. And I'm like, hmm, Okay. So I got on my first plane when I was 21, flew to Dallas, came down here for a weekend. 
um, was overwhelmed by the big city, right? Oh my gosh. And uh, interviewed at a couple places, went back home and I'm like, I'm moving to Texas. So I um, put all my belongings in an empty cattle trailer that some people were moving from Illinois to Texas. And that's how I managed to get down here. Um, That's how you move farm girl style. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. So, so, you know, so moving down here, I landed at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, big academic teaching center. Um, I did a year and a half on the floor, three and a half years of ICU before landing in the ER. So kind of before diabetes, um, I had known some people who had it. And I felt pity. For I'm like, oh, poor thing, you know, oh, poor person. Um, I worked with a guy at a college job I had in college and I knew a nurse and, you know, I, I saw patients with it all the time. And there was always this sort of them, you know, it wasn't me, it was them. And the word patient, which is now not one of my favorite words is like, they were the patient. So they had it, they were broken, right? This othering, if you will. Um, and I will say being an ER nurse, we think we're the baddest of the bad, right? Um, there was this, oh, people would just do what you're supposed to do. You wouldn't be here, right? This belief that somehow it was, it was something they did wrong that landed them in peril and need of extreme support. And I will just, I can kind of stop there, but there really was this sort of, I'm a nurse, we're the medical system. We know more than you. Oh, you poor broken people, right? And there's this, even the word patient implies a hierarchy, right? And I think there's a place for that. If you're having surgery, you are definitely the patient. You are submissive. You're there. If you're really sick, you are. But once you get outside of the hospital, that label doesn't work so often. But I really, I, I guess I can wrap up there. It's just that before diabetes, I was buying a house, running around, working in the ER, all the crazy things, right? It was fun. I was living in Dallas. I was 25, 26 years old, um, having the time of my life. Yeah. That would be before. Okay. And at a certain point, some things started to change. You started to feel some inklings that something was a little different in your body. What were those first inklings? So like any good nurse, I self-diagnosed it all the way, right? So I was working nights, so 7P, 7A, in an ER, level one trauma center, um, doing overtime. I just bought a house. I had a new boyfriend. I was tired, right? And I was like, okay, well, you know, I probably didn't sleep well, or this has been really busy and I just need to sit down. Um, I, I did not notice the thirst or the urination or the hunger because you're so busy. You just never have time to go anyway. And you're when you do finally get a break, you're so thirsty. So I just, it all added up to, I'm busy. It's working. I haven't taken a break in forever. I'm so tired. Um, But the fatigue was eventually what made me do something. And uh, I remember one time it was middle of the night and my primary care doctor happened to come in to see one of his patients. This was before we had hospitalists. I was like, John, I have Epstein-Barr or chronic fatigue or something. I am so darn tired, you know? And He's like, well, what's been going on? And it's like, well, work, all the things I just told you, busy, new new house, new things, all this. And he's like, what did you eat yesterday? And I'm like, probably something out of the vending machine, you know? And he's just like, okay, get some sleep, take a vitamin or two, you know, take care of yourself and come see me in the office. And so I did. And uh, we did some fasting lab work and my fasting glucose was 140. 
um, which is not okay, right? It should be less than that if you're fasting. So I did what any good nurse would do. I starved myself so that the number would be right. Like, I'm not having that. That is not what I'm doing. I exercised. I, you know, I did all the things to make that number not true. He had told me, and again, this was years ago, but he's like, hey, when you're in the ER sometime, check your blood sugar after you eat and see what it is. 300s, right? Once again, oh no, no, not me. That's not what's going on. And again, I, I did all the things to try to make the result be what I wanted, right? Um, and I just kept getting more tired. I had lost weight. I wasn't minding losing the weight. What 20 something girl doesn't want to be a size smaller, right? I'm like, bring it. I'll take that. But this, this word diabetes, mm-mm. I, I really had a hard time and I'm like, I need a second opinion. This is not what it is. And right. So life has a way of moving on and the fatigue just got worse. I start, I was taking some oral hypoglycemics. They really were curious because I was 26. And so type two is what you think as an adult, but I was skinny as a rail and I was losing weight and all the classic sort of type one symptoms. I landed in an endocrinologist's office and he was had the foresight, especially back then of, to do um, doing some antibodies testing and some other things. And I remember he told me, he said, you're not insulin dependent yet, but you will be. I was like, you're full of beans. Like, no, no, no. Uh, you know, I was not having any of it. You know, it's like, um, and he, he, he was nice. Right. He's like, well, check your blood sugar, do your things. And I did. And, uh, kind of fast forward that fatigue. I, I remember it was July 5th. Well, I just remember this because it was the day after independence day. Um, I was off that day. I didn't have to work. His office was open and I was driving on the freeway on interstate 30, probably doing 75, 80 miles an hour. And I knew I was on the freeway and I knew I was going that fast. And I so bad just wanted to close my eyes. I just wanted to be, I was tired. And it was kind of in that moment where I was like, there's something really wrong. And so I saw him, I said, I think I'm ready. Like, I just can't be this tired. I feel like my life force is draining out of me. And um, anyway, so that day I took my first insulin shot, almost didn't because he was like, well, we'll have you go next week to the education center and learn how to give insulin. I'm, you realize like two days ago, if you would have called me in the ER, you would have given me a verbal order and had no problem if I injected someone else. I'm just injecting me. So we had that conversation and I'm like, I just, I don't want to wait another week. I'm tired. I'll go later. I promise I'll go next week. And so I did. So got the prescription and I lived alone. So I went home and it was a scary, scary moment because in nursing, right? Whenever you give insulin, you have to have another nurse check your dose, right? Because the wrong dose can be really, really bad. And here I was alone in my house, injecting insulin into myself. By my, and it was long acting insulin, right? It wasn't, but anyway, it was a, it was a scary moment, but I, I did it. Yeah. And so that kind of turned the corner of everything and uh, start feeling better to be honest. like, but it was a lot of not having this, right. Not dealing with it, but yeah, it was fatigue. A big, like a big um, sort of acceptance, understanding kind of mindset shift. Not at first. No, no, no. <laughs> so it took a it while about, to get there. Yeah. It was about three years. And I will tell you, especially back then, this perfectionist, you got to be the best, you got to be a big ER nurse, you got to, you know, it, it was a really sort of competitive time of my life. And I was trying to be all the things. 
and I could not be a perfect diabetic. Oh my God. I had literally remember like checking my blood sugar and the number wouldn't be good. And I'm like, how can you be so stupid? You are just horrible. You're a horrible person. You're bad. Why are you eating? I mean, I just beat myself up all the time when the numbers weren't what I needed them to be. And I hated it. I hated, hated, hated it. It was just, um, hard. And I, I, I ended up landing in a counselor's office and, you know, my problem wasn't diabetes. It was how I dealt with problems, to be honest. So that was transformational, but it took about three years. And it, I, I'll tell you this, God gave me a gift because what I thought about people with diabetes and how they did it to themselves and how, if they just ate right and took their meds, they'd be fine. Nothing is further from the truth. It is a ongoing daily sort of engagement and manipulation of things going on inside of your body that you can't do perfectly. There is no perfection. So my mantra now is more about persistence. I play the game persistently every day. I don't care if I'm not perfect because I can't be right. Just nope. There are no perfect people. Right. So, um, yeah. So I really had to find a new identity and a new way of seeing the world and myself. How did that come about? So um, that was through the counseling, basically. So one of the things I learned was I was grieving and I was grieving and I had a really bad ideal in my head. So I I could talk a little bit about grief because that's one of the key things I work with people um, today on is nobody tells you that when you get a diagnosis that you lose this life you thought you were going to have. That girl that didn't have to have insulin and didn't have to think about her blood sugar and didn't have to have all the stuff I have to do. And I've done for, you know, many, many years, she's gone. She is gone, you know, bye-bye. And I wanted her back. I didn't want to be this. I wanted to be that because she didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. And everybody was sort of telling, you got this, no problem. I guess I can compare and contrast grief. If someone dies, we lose a loved one. We're very compassionate. We're tolerant of emotional outbursts. You know, we let them wallow and grieve and be all snotty and cry. And you get diabetes and people start judging your food and they're like, come on, you got this. And, you know, you can do it. And they try to cheer you on. Nobody wants your sadness or your ugly cry. Like it, they don't want that. They just want you to go do, do the plan, do your care plan. So you're okay. And so there wasn't any space for grief. You know, I just had to go back to work, right? And put the smiley face on and act like I was fine. And so anyway, what I found is I was grieving, right? And so the end product of grief is acceptance. And I guess this, I'm going to jump the shark a little bit, but it's kind of your next question when we were talking about you know, how did I accept it? So I had to grieve. I had to realize that the anger, the denial, the depression, all those things were normal for this hardship that befell me. It's normal. And I would make the comparison. I think COVID has been a a great teacher for many things. But if you can imagine in the midst of COVID, when we were placed in a place that we didn't want to be, we didn't have control over, we didn't know when it was going to go away. We just got really apathetic. The world was like, yeah, you know, I'm drinking my beers and watching Netflix and I'm getting dressed from the waist up. Right. And I, I, I'm not going to work out. I don't, you know, just, we kind of just got to this point, like, this is hard. Right. We grieved. We were in denial. We were angry. We were trying to figure it out. And I will make that comparison that getting a chronic illness is like being in the midst of that COVID stuff. 
only it never, never stops. You never get out. There's no, there's no over, right? It is the rest of your life. And so you have to find peace with that. And and that's kind of the, the journey that you had to do because it, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want this. I, I, I wanted to get off, right? I wanted out of this crazy place and it wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, I, I've told the story to many people. And so I, and I told you this before is that I love having diabetes now. And that sounds so weird to so many people, but I will tell you why is a, it was really hard to live hating a part of my life. It's just really hard just to hate some part of you, even a broken part of you. So when I was first diagnosed, um, I'm deathly afraid of snakes. Like I do not, they give me the creeps just right now. So if somebody gave me a snake and said, Hey, keep this thing alive. Right. Like, I don't want that. You know, so my diagnosis was very similar. It's like, hey, you have this snake. And if you just feed it this food and do this thing and care for it in this way, you'll be fine. And I'm holding the snake as far away from me as I possibly can going, I don't want this, right? But I got to feed it and I got to take care of it. And so I'm like, eh, far, far away. Through counseling, through processing griefs, through finding purpose in some of the emotions. Because I just really thought I was bad because I couldn't just handle it. I was a nurse I was supposed to know, right? There's a lot of self-loathing until I discovered these emotions were actually helping me process. So that snake over time turned into this little girl part of me. She's a little girl and I love on her and I care for her. She has to take medicine she has to eat. Um, my mama self and my nurse self can really love on her. And so I love her. Despite makes me cry. And still happy tears. That. It's something, it's a way I can live with myself for the rest of my life. And I care for this aspect of myself because she didn't ask for it. She didn't do anything wrong. And she deserves compassion and care. And it's a job I do lovingly every day. Sorry, I didn't mean to cry. No, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's, I think just a testament yeah. to how powerful yeah. and how big that journey was yeah. and over your shoulder. I know you were telling me before a little bit about the dragonfly and there's yeah. this beautiful, I'm not sure if it's a painting. It's like a canvas with a mm-hmm. colorful dragonfly on it. And you were telling me what that symbolizes to yeah. you. Maybe hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I was bedside for about 15 years, a couple of years after my diagnosis, I actually went and changed careers. I wanted to go do something I had thought about. And I went into um, healthcare IT. I was in nursing informatics and I had this really great career um, ended up as an executive for a healthcare company, did all that. Um, and I really had this, I, this thing that I'm telling you about diabetes, this other side, this, this way of living and being in the world that nobody told me about. My doctors didn't, healthcare people didn't, my training didn't. And I knew there was something there. And so I was kind of trying to write a blog and um, figure out what I wanted to do with this. And it's kind of a long story, but I was like, okay, God, I need some, I need some advice. Like, where am I going with this? What does this mean? What am I supposed to do? And I was swimming that day and was waiting for a lightning bolt to come out of the sky and go, okay, here's your, miss- your mission and your message. And nothing happened. So I kept swimming and I just noticed this little dragonfly flitting around me. And um, it, was, it was there forever. Like I swam for probably another 30 minutes and it just was dodging me. I'm like, well, that's crazy. So of course I get out of the pool and this was, you know, now we have cell phones. And so I Google like, what do dragonflies mean? And it was like, it's, they're about transformation and personal growth. And 
there's a lot of metaphors and symmetry with the eyes being really big and looking at things in different ways. And it makes a transition from, you know, from ground to sea to air. And uh, the wings are really uniquely hydraulic, so it can go different ways and be really adaptable and flexible. And so I'm like, that is, that's the diabetes journey. That's the journey for anyone with a chronic illness is you've got to transform. I couldn't be the snake keeper, right? I had to become a person who was okay with where I was and who saw value in my emotions and realized I'm more than just a glucose number, right? So every doctor you go to, what's your A1C? What's your sugars? What happened last Tuesday at two o'clock when your blood sugar is 2.30? Heck, I don't know. Like I, I wish it was all that perfect and neatly tied in a bow. It's not, but it's this transformation that you have to do to step into your new life, right? This new life. And you can't be that person you were. And it's growing, it's growth, right? You learn so much about yourself. And there's many people who have I'm not the first person who's had a medical diagnosis and they they learn something about themselves. Um, but that's where the healing happens, right? So we can heal our bodies physically, but we also have mental, emotional, spiritual wounds sometimes that need healing and with the holistic approach, it deals with all of it, right? All of that has to be well. And I guess moving into sort of a wellness space instead of a healthcare space, healthcare is about elimination of disease and broken parts. Wellness to me is far more. It's about living a life that is purposeful and where you feel safe and confident and you can explore and be curious and um, have relationships, right? Experience this life. Wellness is far more than the absence of disease, right? I love what you were saying about like it being more than a number and just expanding from there that yeah. it's looking at things multidimensionally and yeah. like the the eyes on the dragonfly, like taking it in at different angles and yep. realizing the value of that. Yep. So that's probably one of the things most clients I work with, we start with our numbers because they are very traumatized and victimized by bad numbers. So in my world, there are no good or bad numbers. There's just little bits of digital information that show up on a screen that tell me what to do next. That's it. That's all the meaning they're allowed to have. So sometimes I do it all perfectly and it's high or it's low or it's good, you know, it's normal, whatever that would be. Those labels, those judgments, as long as there's judgment attached to it, they can be very brutal, victimizing and traumatizing. So you know what? The number is what the number is. If you don't like it, what do we learn from it? How do we move forward? How do we create patterns? Because the only thing in healthcare that we can really address is patterns. A one-off is a one-off. You know, what are you going to do? And I think that's evident in healthcare, right? We trend blood pressures. We don't treat one in a vacuum. We look at things over time. Um, even when I was bedside, it was, you know, Treat the patient, not the machine. So even if the if the EKG line's flat, make sure the leads are on. Don't go cardioverting someone, right? I think we have to do that same thing in dealing with people who may be facing a healthcare challenge is you have to take care of them first. What do they need? Because sometimes they might need comfort, understanding, compassion to be heard, to not be judged, right? And um, everybody, it's just people feel so victimized often by their providers, you know, that wasn't good. Didn't do that. What'd you do this time? Like there's, just, and I think they're all meaning well, but when you are, when you abdicate your authority to someone higher than you, 
in the doctor-patient relationship. So I have collaborative care with my providers. I'm in charge of me 24-7, 365. I wake up in the middle of the night when I buzz and do all these things. I am always here doing this forever. I see them a couple times a year for help, for some advice, for access to resources. Um, they are paid collaborators. They are not authoritarian figures or I, I won't work with somebody that would pass judgment on me. Right. It's just, I, again, it's about that persistence. I don't always hit a home run. I always get up to bat and swing. You know, I, I look at the air, I get my grip, figure out what's going on. I play the game every day. Some days better than others. That's all anyone can ask of you, right? If you do your best and sometimes every day, your best is different, right? So think of COVID. Sometimes you just, you don't got it. Can't do it today, right? I'm eating, I'm eating the candy bar. <laughs> I am because I need it, or I need to feel part of this community and connection at the birthday party, or there's so many other factors other than you should not do this because it will affect your blood sugar, right? That's, that's and it's such a simplistic way to look at a human, right? When we just look mm -hmm. at one teeny tiny, I mean, important, but one small yeah. piece of the yeah. equation, we're not really looking at the whole equation. Yeah. And people behave how they believe. Right. And so it goes back to transformation. If you believe other people are more important, if you believe you're a failure, if you believe it's impossible, if you believe changing your diet is going to be too hard, whatever those beliefs are, that's where the problem is. Right. And that is about fear. Those things are all fear based. I don't want to change. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be left out. What if I lose this? Right. There's so much fear. Mm -hmm. That's where the healing happens. And yeah. then when we don't have as much fear, then things pop up like curiosity. Hmm, what if? I wonder. That's interesting, right? The door just opened. Mm -hmm. And everybody, every individual person can walk through that door and figure something else, but they're the only ones that are, that know what they're willing to do. They're the only ones that know what works in their world and what aligns with their values, their beliefs, all the stuff. And some beliefs they may not give up. I have friends who smoke. They know it. They still do it. That's their belief. I'm not changing. So it, as I'm working with somebody, if someone's not willing to do whatever it is, that's that's okay. Like, what are we willing to do? Where are the opportunities? What are the possibilities? Possibilities, curiosity, all that stuff feels good versus here's the, here's the plan and do these five things in this order. And they're like, I can't do it. And then they abandon, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you were talking about that transformation process, I'm guessing like some of those things at some point did come into play, like the curiosity. Once you were able to process sort of that grief factor um, and kind of the accepting, okay, this is the road I'm on. Yeah. So then what things did you tap into to kind of help shift from that space to being where you are today? Several different things. So early on with the counselor, again, it was understanding I was grieving and that these emotions wasn't because I was weak. It was normal. Like anybody who gets a diagnosis should struggle. Like you it would be kind of crazy if you got a chronic diagnosis and you're like, yay, this is great. Like on some level, there's got to be some adjustment period. So one is giving yourself grace. The mm -hmm. other thing that was very interesting is um, during my time in corporate America, I learned all these different sort of corporate business strategies, right? Who would think that has anything to do with healthcare? But 
So I worked with the sales team a lot and we learned why people buy, why they make a purchase decision, why they pick the blue one over the red one. It's because it means something to them, right? Or interpersonal dynamics, how to get along with the team, how to be heard, how to speak so that people understand what you need and want. There's all these different kind of business strategies and I can't think there are more, but I'm like, wow, that stuff is really helpful for me in talking to my doctors or putting boundaries around people that that's not okay to say that, or you can say this, or um, why am I choosing this? Why am I doing that? What do I need? Like, it was just really interesting to take some of these life lessons. And then I think I would, on top of that, as I've really sort of, I don't know if the right word is spiritual, but gotten beyond, we are just bones and blood of what traditional allopathic medicine tells us to realizing I really love the idea of integrated and holistic. Like there's all these other facets of self that matter. Right. And I guess maybe, maybe that's a good way to wrap it up over that journey. I realized I matter like what Mm -hmm. I think matters, what I need matters. um, And I'm more than again, that number, it was giving myself permission to be this way and not be embarrassed. Like, and that was a lesson I learned early on is I, my mother told me this was a great, um, this was early on, right after I was diagnosed, but she said, don't hide it. If it's a big deal, if it's not a big deal to you, it won't be a big deal to anybody else. And secrets are gossip worthy. So if you're hiding parts of yourself and if there's something there to be discovered, all of a sudden people want to know and they're nosy. But if you're out there first, you get to share your version, your story, your way, and you control the message. Um, and it was such a healthy lesson. And, and I did, I've always been very, I haven't ever hidden it. Well, I should say when I first started wearing a pump and I was single and I was dating, I kind of hid the pump because it was weird. You had this box on you and it was awkward. I, I chose who I shared that with. Right. But, um, yeah. So, it, and again, it was a lot of lessons and this opportunities and people and, but it was, and being true to myself. So I guess the other thing I can say is, um, Everyone told me what I can't do. You can't work nights. I just bought a house. I need the shift differential. I have to work nights. So I had to figure out how to make insulin work rotating between days and night shifts, right? They told me I shouldn't have children. I had a children, two perfectly healthy children at 39 and 41. Um, there's been all these things that they say you can't because for the medical legal risk mitigation, those things are risky. But there was something in me that knew I could. Right. And so it's trusting yourself more than sort of the experts out there. Um, And again, collaborating with your providers and not being. uh, What's the word? I guess victimized by them, right? Like, like there are people just like you and me, we're all, everyone in healthcare is a person at the end of the day and we pay them and we go to them for their skills and expertise. Um, And that's again, that patient word. It's like, I I want you to be on my team. Right. I want you to be my helper. I don't want you to be this high and mighty. And I feel like healthcare is moving, right? Especially post-COVID. People don't want that anymore. People are seeking kind of something different, right? I'm like, I, I don't want to, if you look at people that are 50, 60, 70 years old, the doctor says, doctor goes, that's what you do. You know, there's just very little questioning. And I think now we have access to so much more information, right? People go find stuff. And then they have questions and they can ask those questions. And I think it's good to be a good consumer, right, of your health care when you need it. And also 
finding ways to be well and whole that are outside of just traditional healthcare. Okay. Yeah, looking at that whole person, that multidimensional aspect of mm-hmm. it. Yeah, because we are. We're so much more than just, you know, red blood cells and femurs. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So much yeah. more than that. Um, so, you know, as a part of, so you've been in the nursing field for 40 years, you said? I graduated in 85. So 38, I guess, if we do the math real quick. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, you're offering support, encouragement to people who have been diagnosed as diabetic. Mm-hmm. And what do you think it is that really resonates the most with the folks that you are helping? Um, a couple of things. One is they, they know I understand, right? They also appreciate my honesty and transparency about being on the other side. I, I've written a blog somewhere about both sides of the needle. Like I've given it and I've received it and I get what that's like. And so to even give them some grace that the medical system isn't perfect, right? Like that helps. And this idea that they are more than their numbers, people feel so judged and valued and are um, devalued. And when we talk about grief, that's it. every time, every time, why didn't somebody tell me that? Why didn't someone tell me I was supposed to struggle and this was going to be hard? Everyone has tried to cheer me up. So I had to hide it. I had to put on the face, right? I had to pretend like this wasn't happening to me. And right, that's a, especially if you're a kid, right? So Imagine that those that are diagnosed younger, um, there's a lot of stuffing emotions and faking it. You know, here's how I show the world and here's here. But just to expose that and to to see and to validate and acknowledge what they what they went through, what they, you know, and how they were expected to be. But yeah, I think it's just, just being real about how hard it is because I and I, I'm not discounting anybody I see online, but there's a lot of people that are like, here's how to do diabetes perfectly. And my numbers are always perfect. And, you know, you can do all these extreme things. I'm like, I don't want to do extreme sports. You know, I think it's important to move your body. I think it's really important to have peace in your mind. I think it's important to remember that you're connected to others. And if we can do those things well, and not stress ourselves out so much. Um, there is no perfection. It's just showing up and doing your best and, and noticing the good as much as the bad, right? Because that's our lives weren't meant to be this beat ourselves up till we're done. And so I think just giving pe- people a safe place to land and to really share, like I've, I, again, people that have had diabetes for 30 years and they're like, I've never told anybody this. How do you, how do you deal with that for 30 years and never share that? Like, I don't know. I just, um, I'm a talker, obviously, right. I process out here, but I can't imagine it, what it would be like to have a secret like that for 30 years and finally find up somebody I could tell it to that would understand. Yeah. There's something to having that space just to, just to be, and to be okay with not being okay sometimes yeah. about it. Like when you first started this process. Yeah. Yeah, I I know what it's like to feel like a failure, like you're not doing it right. And all the doctors will tell you you're not doing it right. And your numbers should be no matter what. And this is, again, not a ding at the medical system, but our current EMR driven medical system, everybody starts with a problem list. You are a problem list to be dealt with. What are your Mm -hmm. problems and how are we Mm going to fix your problems? Right. And and I don't think it was intentional, but it's kind of insidious that that's how we start. Right. 
And so that's like your introduction before the doctor even meets you. That's the picture they're forming in their mind of you. Right. I'm a list of problems. If you look at mine, I should be dead. Like (laughs) (laughs) stuff, but, um, but yeah, I think to be seen for who you are and to be seen as a human, a person, compassionate, not, you know, 15 minutes. And I got to ask you these questions. So I get my clinical quality measures and I get all the documentation. I put all the stuff in. So I don't get dinged in my audit. Like there's this whole level of healthcare, right. That can get in the way of this interpersonal connection or really what a person needs. And the way the system is, I think that's why there's an opportunity with coaching is because you can't do what all you can't be everything an individual needs in that mm-hmm. space where we're just getting, I need my meter and I need test strips and I need insulin. I need, there's a, a really finite set of stuff you can do in right. that short time period. And it's very focused. Right. Mm-hmm. And I always like the word and, and you need a whole lot more and mm-hmm. you need a whole lot more because it's not just, and I don't even like, I know it falls under the term behavioral health or mental health. I think it's normal. I think it's a normal struggle. Like you should be you should go through these stages if, and again, it goes back to COVID. Was everybody mentally ill during COVID? No, we were just in a really hard time and we didn't know how to cope with it and we didn't have the right tools and it was hard to get perspective and it was fear, right? All this stuff. I think that is normal. It becomes a problem when you're stuck there and you don't know how to navigate beyond it. And so again, I don't, I don't like the labels. And so I know there's a stigma sometimes about mental health and it, to be honest, one of the reasons I created my um, curriculum and I created a video series because I knew I knew how bad I had to feel before I was willing to go to a counselor because I'm like, you know, I'm a badass nurse. I don't need to go to a counselor. You know, like there, there's just a stigma. I think it's less than it was maybe back then. Yeah. Um, it's like the millennials love it. <laughs> right? It's much more popular, but Um, I wanted to offer something where people could literally swipe their credit card online, watch some videos, do some self-exploration, and nobody has to know. They can go figure some of these things out. And and then they have those aha moments and they're like, oh, I can say this. Wow, this is why I feel this way. Um, Once those light bulbs go on, you can't turn them off. Right? It's a beautiful thing. It's absolutely a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Totally. And this is a nice segue into how folks can connect with you if they want to learn more about you and your coaching services. Absolutely. So um, my website is betterdiabeteslife.com, L-I-F-E. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. So if you go to my website, you go to the footer, all the social links are down there. And the other thing I do that's really fun is I am a teacher on a platform called Insight Timer. So it's a meditation platform and I do weekly healing meditations. So we practice some coaching tips and techniques on ways of thinking about things, um, doing some different techniques to sort of get into our parasympathetic nervous system. And then we do guided meditation because believe it or not, we have a lot of negative self-talk in our brain. And so it's really healthy to put some positive self imagery and, you know, I'm okay. I can do better. I am healing versus I'm sick, right? Those labels that we stick on ourselves, our brain doesn't know the difference. Right. Our brain's processing whatever in there. So I think it's good to put some good stuff in there too on purpose. So that's insight timer. And that, that link is on um, my website as well. That's great. I'm going to link to all this in the show notes too. Okay. Thank you so much, Patricia. I know you have a busy day, a fun day, lots of good stuff happening. Yeah, so thank you for taking time 
to tell about your story and about what that journey has been like for you and your, you know, the, the positive side that yes, you're, you're still living with the diabetic diagnosis and you're thriving with that. And you are helping other people figure that out too. So it doesn't, it's okay to grieve that. It's okay to have space for that. And also to know, like, you can figure things out. You can get in a good flow. You can have a good rhythm and, and do all the things that you want to do. Right, right. Our feelings are there to give us information. And when we learn how to listen to what they're saying, it gives us so much information to move through things. So I think the worst thing about a lot of chronic diagnoses is that getting stuck, feeling stuck and trapped. Nothing feels worse. So if we can, anything we can do to get ourselves moving towards better, to transforming my dragonfly, right? Like where we want to go. We want to become the best version of ourselves. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to subscribe, share with a friend and leave a review. 